0: Well, it is my joy to once again open up the word of God to you, and I would encourage you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. This morning, we will look at this text and answer the question, the ultimate question that every person is faced with in life, and that is, who is Jesus? Matthew chapter 16, and today we find ourselves in verse 13 as we continue to go verse by verse through this incredible gospel that speaks to the sovereignty of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Follow along as I read. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he began asking his disciples, saying, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist and others, Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should not tell or that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Life is full of questions that we must answer and choices that we must make. As children, they don't seem to be all that important. But as we grow older, we find the questions to be more serious. We ask questions like, who can I trust? What do I want to do with my life? Where do I need to go to get training? Uh, Who shall I date? Who shall I marry? Where will I work? Where will I live? And so on. But friends, there is a question that has haunted every Man and every woman throughout history, a question that is infused within us by our creator an inherent query that screams for an answer. And that is, how should I respond to my creator, God? Shall I glorify him and worship him or should I avoid him and ignore him and worship myself? Now, what I'm about to say in preface to opening up the text to you is, for many of you, perhaps a reminder, but it's very important. Please understand that the Bible says, first of all, that everyone knows that God exists. The psalmist says in Psalm 53 and verse one that the fool hath said in his heart that there is no God. But the evidence is absolutely overwhelming and irrefutable. And may I remind you of a few passages in Romans 1 and 2, again, as we set the stage for understanding the text this morning. We have evidence of God's existence from conscience. In Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, we read that the law of God has been written in our hearts. And that's speaking to every human being that has ever existed. The law of God has been written within our hearts. In other words, every human being bears the image of God and possesses an innate sense of right and wrong. In fact, the intrinsic knowledge of God will be called to the witness stand to testify against unbelievers at God's bar of justice. When, according to Romans two sixteen, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, According to my gospel. In fact, the conscience is very aware of the reality of God and even his law at some level. We witness God's holy hatred of sin when we observe the natural consequences of violating his moral order. We see that, for example, in the whole AIDS epidemic. That is a profound violation of the moral and, in fact, the physical order. We see the law of God in past judgments. We see it in the sentence on Adam and Eve. We can see it in the evidence of the cataclysmic wrath of God that was poured out during the time of the flood. We can see it in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And certainly the most graphic demonstration of God's moral order and his law that has been violated and needs to be somehow satisfied is when we when he poured out his judgment and his wrath upon his son on the cross. In fact, every man who has ever lived knows that he stands guilty in the presence of a holy God. And he will, therefore, by divine grace, seek and find reconciliation, or he will decide to rebel. Very simple. We also have evidence of God's existence, not just from conscience, but also from creation. Every reasonable man is overwhelmed with the unimaginable intricacies of nature when we look around and we see what God has made. Through creation, God has given every person who has ever existed a clear message of of, of his glory, of his power, and even his faithfulness in his character. In Psalm 19, beginning in verse one, the psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork day unto day under speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. And dear friends, when when man responds with reverential awe to the revelation that has been given to him through creation when he cries out to know more of God and to somehow please God, God has promised that he will respond to that kind of humility and in his sweet providence and in his infinite love and mercy, he will provide a means for that worshiper to hear the gospel and be reconciled to him by grace through faith. So because of these two witnesses, conscience and creation, Romans chapter one and verse 20 says man is without excuse. Now, tragically, Romans one tells us that the wrath of God is poured out against people because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You say what truth? Well, the truth of God being creator and judge, something that everybody knows is true. And therefore, God pours out his wrath on those people. And in Romans one, beginning in verse twenty one, here's what the spirit of God tells us, even though they knew God. See, again, the assumption is people know, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over. And the text goes on to describe how God gives people over to the consequences of their iniquity and abandons them to their lusts, therefore pouring out his wrath of abandonment upon him. And as people experience the wrath of divine abandonment, abandonment, as they continue to suppress the truth about God as creator and God as judge, as they oppose divine revelation, eventually the darkness of spiritual deception takes them over. Eventually, they silence their conscience. And Romans 1 tells us that, again, God gives them over to a mind that is utterly worthless Paul tells us that the people turn away from the truth and they turn aside unto myths and naively they follow false teachers and devise foolish philosophies all because they refused to humble themselves before the question that was presented to them every waking moment of their life. Namely, how should I respond to my creator and my judge? And, of course, they answer negatively and they decide, you know what? I'm not going to honor him. I'm not going to give him thanks for who he is. I'm not going to glorify him. Now, I want to take a few moments to stir up your minds with some examples from our culture that will stand in stark contrast to our text. There are others who would say that there is a more pressing question than how should I respond to my creator And we read about this in many places, certainly in the new purpose-driven life movement. You read about it. Twenty-five million copies, I understand, have already been sold. And there the author and many would affirm that um, the, the main question is, why am I here? But friends, I would submit to you, that's not the first driving question that man asks. Man knows why he's here. He's here to worship and glorify God, but he can't stand it. Therefore, he suppresses the truth of God being creator and God being judge. And so he tries to make sense out of his life after rejecting God. And he rebels. And in his rebellion, he answers the question that the purpose driven life would offer. And that is, what am I here for? I have no purpose. I need purpose. The ultimate question, therefore, of the purpose-driven life and this whole philosophy about, you know, my purpose, my destiny, I believe is very self-centered. It's a self-absorbed query. It's not God-centered. And certainly if you read that book and many others like it, the assumption is that God created us to make us happy. And therefore... He wants to help us find this purpose in our life so that we can be happy and we can be fulfilled and we can be successful. Because after all, God exists for me. We don't necessarily exist for him. But friends, I would submit to you that Jesus never preached any of that to the multitudes. He did not come before the multitudes and say, folks, I'm sure you're all wondering why you've been placed here on earth. I'm sure you're all clamoring to find out what your destiny in life is. And so I've come down from heaven to help you discover your purposes in life. Sounds silly, doesn't it? Instead, he told them to repent. Why? Because he knew that they knew that they were sinners, that there was something eating at them and that there was a creator God and a God that would someday judge them. Jesus knew that they knew that they were not right with God. There is no need to convince them of this. Everyone knows this. In fact, in Romans 2.15, again, the word of God tells us that the law is written in your heart. Your your, your conscience bears witness. Your thoughts alternately accuse or defend you. By the way, had Jesus preached the sanitized gospel of the purpose-driven life, he would have had the same reaction as they're having today. He would have had millions of people buying his book. He would have millions of people following after him. He would have been a bestseller for sure. The multitudes would have never abandoned him as they did repeatedly. And they would have certainly never called for his blood. But Jesus said there is a narrow way and there is a wide way. Very few are going to enter through the narrow way. Many will go through the wide way. And down the broad road that leads to destruction. And Jesus, of course, was the narrow way. Now, again, people, the Bible teaches us that every man knows his ultimate purpose in life is to glorify God. He either doesn't know how, but legitimately wants to, or he resents the whole notion and he chooses instead to silence God, to silence his conscience and to glorify himself. So we need to be asking, how can I glorify God? Not how can I find purpose in my life so I can be happy? You see, friends, the issue in life is not happiness, but holiness. And when we are holy, we will be happy. God has written a book on this very topic. It's called the Bible. And it could be called the worship driven life. Well, of course, that won't sell. It won't sell because self-centered people, the Bible says, suppress the truth and unrighteousness, the truth of God as creator and God as judge. So they prefer a different Jesus, a wide gate gospel, a watered down gospel. And again, this is indicative of this book and this whole movement that is sweeping the world. That's why I've come back to it once again. By the way, in The Purpose Driven Life, the book's stated appeal is not that it clearly and boldly presents the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And I know I've gone over a lot of this before, and I'm not going to repeat all of that. But rather, it promises to, quote, transform your life and, quote, help you to discover how all the pieces of your life fit together. Is that the purpose of the gospel? It claims that it will make the lives of its readers less stressful and more fulfilling. In fact, the author says, and I quote, I know all the great things that are going to happen to you. They happen to me, and I have never been the same since I discovered the purpose of my life. I wish he had said, I've never been the same since I asked Jesus to save me from my sins, and I became a new creature in Christ. But again, that's real offensive, isn't it? The book's book's, um, back cover hails the purpose-driven life as, and I quote, and this is from Bruce Wilkinson, a priceless gift for everyone who wants to know their purpose and fulfill their destiny. Billy Graham says on the back of the book, a work that will, quote, guide you to greatness. Max Locato says, a masterpiece of wise counsel for you. And another man, Lee Strobel, says on the back of the book, quote, believe me, you'll never be the same after reading this. And of course, the marketing strategy is clear buy this book and you'll be happier because after all, God wants you to be happy. Come join the Christian life and be fulfilled. Now, friends, I ask you. When people gaze into. The star filled skies at night and they shake their heads in utter amazement and awe at the vast luminaries in an infinite sky. At that moment, are they prone to say, my, 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 I wonder how I can discover my purpose in life. Come on. Do they say, I I wonder how I can get. God that created all this to make me happier, to help me to feel more important and more successful, to somehow guide me into greatness. In fact, I am so moved right now as I stand amazed in the presence of of creation and my creator that I'm going to help. I'm going to ask him right now to help me find my destiny in life so that I can truly have a sense of meaning and purpose and and feel more fulfilled as a person. So that somehow I can make the pieces of my life fit together. Friends, that, that is not what happens in the heart of a man. And certainly someone that is truly seeking after God. Because what they will say is something very different as the psalmist did in Psalm 8. Where he said, O oh Lord, O oh Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. Who has displayed thy splendor above the heavens. And he goes on and he asks, What is man that thou dost take thought of him? Beloved, Jesus never preached any of this purpose and destiny stuff. You'll never find that in the New Testament. He never made that the emphasis of his training with the disciples. Because the gospel is all about sinners being reconciled to a holy God through confession, through repentance, through self-denial, through humility. And it's all about selfless, sacrificial love, even if it takes you to a cross. You see, friends, life is all about God and his glory, not man and his needs. In the purpose-driven life, you have a feel-good gospel. In fact, chapter 8 begins with this, and I quote, the moment you were born into the world, God was there as an unseen witness smiling at your birth. It goes on to say, you are a child of God and you bring pleasure to God like nothing else he has ever created. End quote. Now, friends, that's not even biblical, and I'm not going to take time to, to prove that point. But, of course, this is very appealing to man's felt need for affirmation, for identity and a sense of belonging. In modern day multitudes rush by the millions to this new, tolerant Jesus, this non judgmental God who fits their postmodern culture. Because after all, nobody can know truth, so let's just kind of make up our own truth and be true to ourselves. But friends, God is only pleased and God only smiles at us when we enter His kingdom with great agony of soul, begging for undeserved mercy. And then we begin to have purpose in life, and that purpose is to glorify Him, to live to the praise of His glory. And then our lives confront a hostile world, and and as we oppose everything, or as it opposes everything that we hold dear, and as a result, the Bible tells us that we will suffer, we will experience hardship, we will experience difficulty. I would like to hear this purpose driven life applied to Hebrews 11. All of those people that died for the cause of Christ. And then as we experience those difficulties through it all, the Lord says to us through Second Corinthians twelve nine, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Now all of this, my friends, is to help you see that Jesus supplies the answer to the question for those who will ask it. How should I respond to my creator? And the response should be we should respond in humility and repentance, a place our faith in his saving work. Now, let me give you the context to the text. Jesus has gone now to Caesarea Philippi. It's about 25 miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee, the northernmost outpost of Israel's promised land. A very beautiful region. I've been there. Some of you have. Many times you can look up and see Mount Hermon rising about nine thousand feet and the snow up on top of the mountain. And according to Luke nine, eight, Jesus has been alone uh, in sweet communion with his father, preparing his heart now to meet with his twelve disciples. And he's going to confirm three very profound truths in their hearts and minds. Three magnificent realities concerning his person and his work. This is what we'll look at for a few minutes here this morning. First of all, we're going to see him confirm in them the person of Christ. Secondly, the revealer of Christ. And thirdly, the church of Christ. And certainly, again, if you truly want to have purpose in your life, you must not only understand these basic truths, but you must live consistently with them. First of all, notice verse 13 as he confirms to them the person of Christ. He asked his disciples saying, who do people say that the son of man is people here referring to his covenant people, the Jews that he's been ministering to son of man being a title that Jesus used most often to describe himself. By the way, it's the title that the Jews hated because it denoted humanness, not not deity. And and they wanted uh, uh, an Arnold Schwarzenegger type of Jesus. You know, they wanted somebody that was going to conquer the Romans and give them everything that they wanted on in life. So they preferred a Messiah that was a conquering king, not a son of man Messiah. So the disciples, knowing that, hey, these people have seen all of your miracles and Jesus is saying, you know, they, they, they have seen my miracles. They've heard me teach. Who do they say that I am? By the way, it's not that Jesus needed the insight. He knew perfectly well, but he wanted to confirm this with them. The disciples responded, well, Yes, indeed, you know, they've, they've seen all of your supernatural works, so some think that you're John the Baptist. Uh, others think that uh, you're one of the Old Testament prophets, that, that you're Elijah or, or Jeremiah or, or one of the others. I find it fascinating how history repeats itself. People are like this today, aren't they? They refuse to believe the claims of who Jesus is based upon his own testimony, based upon the testimony of the prophets, of the apostles. Based upon the testimony, therefore, of the word of God. They don't want that kind of a God. Oh, no, we can't have that. That's not the God we want. We want a God that's going to meet our needs. After all, like the people back then, we we want free food. (laughs) We, We want prosperity. We want to return to Edenic splendor. We want the Messianic age to come in. We want utopia. As a footnote. This is Palm Sunday. We recognize this as the day when Jesus entered into Jerusalem. But may I remind you that these very people that sang on that Sunday when Jesus entered Jerusalem, Hosanna, which by the way means saved now. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Those people weren't saying Hosanna to the son of man. Oh, no, they didn't want that. They wanted the son of David, emphasizing kingship. And those same people who were obsessed with him being the king and obsessed with physical, not spiritual deliverance, turned against him just a few days later and called for his blood. Same thing is true today. People want a different Jesus than the Jesus of the Bible And after all of the explanations were over with, over with in verses 15 and 16, he says to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Thou art the Christ, which is the the, the Greek equivalent for the Hebrew Messiah. Yes, even though you are the son of man, even though you you, you have come in meekness and, and unimaginable humility, You are the expected one, the anointed one. You are the promised deliverer. You are the son of the living God. The son, of course, conveys the sacred concept of oneness in essence as the living God. Tragic again, how desperately people try to redefine Jesus forever demeaning his glorious attributes and his saving purposes. Today people would say, "Well, you know Jesus was a he, he was a great, great great prophet. some would say, maybe a great philosopher." Others would say, "Oh he was he was a great teacher, and even a lot of neo-evangelicals today would say, "Well, yes, he was God, oh, but he wasn't sovereign. He, he doesn't really know what's happening. He's kind of as shocked as we are when planes run into the World Trade Center and others. Put a smiley face on Jesus. Oh, yeah, he's just this wonderful God that wants to run around and make everybody happy. In fact, he just can't wait to make you happy. If you'll just let him. That's the notion. Dear friends, please hear this. And I I, I guess I just need to say it. and, And have it on the record. Jesus was and he is the second person of the triune Godhead. He is co-equal, he is consubstantial, meaning he's of the same essence, and he is co-eternal with the Father. The Lord Jesus Christ is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. He's more than some smiley face God that runs around desperate trying to make you feel more fulfilled in life. He is the one who in his incarnation was born of a virgin, the one who surrendered the prerogatives of deity and took upon himself the form of a servant to accomplish our redemption through his voluntary, his vicarious, his substitutionary, his propitiatory and redemptive death. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Friends, this is the Jesus of the Bible, the son of man. But my, how this has been distorted and redefined in contemporary evangelicalism. There's this subtle twist. You see, the real Jesus is not politically correct. We can't talk about him. We can't talk about the son of the living God who had to come and live a perfect life as fully God and fully man to satisfy the wrath of God because we were so sinful we couldn't do that. Oh, no, you can't say that. But, friends, that is the truth. We've got to be relevant today to seekers is the idea. So we've got to either redivine him to make him a little more gentle or we have to conceal him altogether. Let me give you a current example of this. Recently, there was a violent rapist and sodomite who broke away from a female guard down in Georgia. You probably saw it on the news seriously wounded her and killed a judge and three others and escaped and allegedly followed a woman into her apartment and bound her very brave lady. And ultimately, according to her testimony is she tried to witness to him and she shared with him this purpose driven life that I've talked about and tried to warn you about. Now, friends, I don't know exactly what she said and I, I I, I don't want in any way to underestimate her bravery and perhaps the truth of what she said. But I do know the media twist because I heard it and I've read it. In fact, they had the publisher, Zondervan Publisher, come on, the publisher of The Purpose Driven Life. And a paraphrase of what he said in the interview is that that because of what she said to this man out of The Purpose Driven Life, the cycle of violence was, was broken. And suddenly he understood that God had a purpose for his life. That was the whole emphasis. And that's what you constantly hear. In fact, the publisher went on to say that this miracle is occurring all over the world. That there's been like 25 million copies sold. And now it's going way back up. And the New York Times bestseller and Amazon and Barnes & Noble are talking about how the sales are increasing once again. Sales are skyrocketing. Now, friends, here's what I find interesting. Never once did I hear this lady or the interviewers or the publisher mention the name Jesus. Never. Only the only term that they would use of deity is the non-offensive and politically correct term God, because see, now everybody worships God of some sort. There is nothing that I've heard about the gospel, about sin, about mercy, about grace, about repentance, about confession, about the cross, about resurrection, only about purpose. By the way, none of those things are even mentioned in The Purpose Driven Life. I wish that this man would have emerged, and I pray that perhaps he did, and I don't know the full story, that he would have emerged from, from that apartment With a white flag in one hand and a Bible in the other. I wish that he would have emerged and said, this woman told me about Jesus. And and I confessed my sins. My sins have been forgiven. And I willingly accept the fact that what I have done is a heinous crime and I deserve the punishment. I deserve an eternal hell. But God in His grace has saved me. Dear friends, had this happened, all the attention and all of the praise would be going a book that God wrote, not one that man wrote, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? By the word of God. You see, according to Romans 10, 17, we're not to be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. So first of all, Jesus, then he wants to confirm to his disciples the reality of the person of Jesus. But secondly, he wants them to understand that the revealer of Christ is the father. Notice what he says in verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. This was, by the way, his family name It's an Aramaic term. It means son of Jonah, underscoring, underscoring, I believe, Peter's human limitations. Blessed are you, you humanly limited Simon, son of Jonah, Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, he's saying, because of your sincere acknowledgement of who I am, you are blessed because you are indeed part of the family of God. But Simon, you did not figure this out on your own. Mere flesh and blood is incapable of discerning such truth. The Father who is in heaven revealed this to you. John one thirteen, Jesus says about those who believe in his name that they were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of what? But of God. John 6.44, Jesus says that no one comes to me. The Greek indicates that, that, that they're unable, they're incapable. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. An idea of an irresistible, compelling, a divine and sovereign force. You see, friends, this is the power of regeneration. This is the new birth. This is the recreation. When there is a radical and complete transformation that is wrought within the human soul by God through the Holy Spirit. You think about this. Even as unborn infants, we, we, we are unable to induce our conception. We, we are unable to in any way cooperate in the procreative process or in birth. So, too, we who are spiritually dead and blind and deaf cannot transform our spiritual state apart from the quickening operation of a sovereign God. It's impossible to do. Jesus is reminding them of this. You see, friends, salvation is all of grace from beginning to end. I know some will ask, well, what about man's free will? This always comes up. Folks, the issue is not free will. The issue is desire. Please understand this. Let me digress for a moment, because this is all this always comes up. Dear friend, as fallen creatures, we are hopelessly predisposed to assume that we are far better than what we really are. But God has made it clear that our natures are so depraved, so corrupt, so degenerate that it is utterly impossible for us to choose God over our own desires. It's not a part of our nature. Now, this morning I went out to feed my horse and my dog followed me, doing as he typically does, barking for his food. We have an herbivore and we have a carnivore. Two radically different natures. The horse eats grass, the dog eats meat. Could the horse eat meat? Well, yeah, he's got the will to do that. But he doesn't have the desire. Does Otis, the big boxer, Have the free will to eat grass? Oh, yeah, he could do that. But folks, he does not have the desire. It's not part of his nature. I have a free will to do all kinds of things. As I've said before, I have a free will to take a knife and stab my grandbabies. But folks, that's not in my nature. I have no desire to do that. Likewise, every man that has ever lived has the free will to choose Christ, but he has no desire to do it. And apart from the quickening work of the Spirit of God, he will never do it. A fallen conscience has no abhorrence of sin. A fallen conscience, a fallen heart has no desperation for self-renunciation. It has no commitment to self-denial. It has no passion innately to somehow confess sin and repent and glorify God. All of that was lost in the fall. There is nothing we can do to save ourselves. And oh, dear friends... It's only when we have no hope of saving ourselves. Now, please hear this. It's only when we have no hope of saving ourselves that we can be sure that God has begun saving us. Because a man is never closer to grace than when he is quite confident he can never attain it. What a marvelous and inscrutable mystery that the Holy Spirit comes along and he helps us bring to bring us to the end of ourselves. And makes the unwilling willing. We can offer no contribution to our salvation. Thus we share in none of its glory. That's what Jesus is saying. Flesh and blood. In other words, your humanness did not reveal this to you. Reveal what? The reality of who Jesus was. But my Father who is in heaven revealed it to you. Spurgeon put it this way. Back in the 1800s. He says, and I quote, careless sinner, learn that thy salvation hangs in God's hand. Oh, remember, thou art entirely in the hand of God. Thou hast sinned against him. And if he wills to damn thee, damned thou art. Thou canst not resist his will, nor thwart his purpose. Thou hast deserved his wrath. And if he chooses to pour the full shower of that wrath upon thy head, thou canst do nothing to avert it. If, on the other hand, he chooses to save thee, he is able to save thee to the uttermost. But thou liest as much in his hand as the summer's moth beneath thine own finger. He is the God whom thou art grieving every day. Doth it not make thee tremble to think that thy eternal destiny now hangs upon the will of him whom thou hast angered and incensed? Does not this make thy knees knock together and thy blood curdle? If it does, so I rejoice inasmuch as this may be the first effect of the Spirit's drawing in thy soul. Oh, tremble to think that the God whom thou hast angered is the God upon whom thy salvation or thy condemnation entirely depends. Tremble and... Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and ye perish from the way while His wrath is kindled but a little. Friends, these glorious truths are at the heart of a worship-driven life. That Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the Son of the living God. And that only by sovereign grace will we ever have this revelation occur within our souls. And change our life. And that no man will ever have any purpose until he has first found Christ. Then our purpose becomes obvious. As redeemed assembly, we live, according to Paul's words in Ephesians 1.6, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved, referring to Christ. So Jesus knows the paramount significance of his disciples understanding the person of Christ. He knows how important it is for them to understand the revealer of Christ. But notice what flows from the wellspring of this divine revelation. Thirdly, he speaks about the church of Christ. Verse 18, he says, and also I say to you that you are Peter. Folks, catch this. The term in the original language is petros, and it means a small little pebble or a stone. You are Peter. You're just a little stone. Then he says, and upon this rock, and now he uses a different word, Petra. Now, this is referring to a massive mountain. This is used to describe a a foundation stone in a building. You could say that this is the Gibraltar. Peter, you're a pebble, but upon this Gibraltar, I will build my church. Well, what's the Gibraltar? What's the rock? Friends, first of all, it is not Peter, as the Roman Catholic Church believes. It is not a person from which they believe that that, that the papacy has descended. Peter is not the head of the church. He's not the rock upon which the church is built. The Gibraltar is simply Peter's sovereignly inspired confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, Ephesians 2.20. Ephesians 4 and verse 15 says that we are to grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body is joined and knit together. And then notice the wonderful assurance that Jesus gave his little ragtag group of ordinary men. He says, I will build my church. Friends, I, I, I rejoice in this truth. It's not human ingenuity. It's not up to me to build the church. I have to do my part, but ultimately it's Christ working through me and through you as a body. There's no need for manipulative techniques. There's no need for some kind of human ingenuity. There's no need for a marketing organization to help us write the purpose-driven church and the purpose-driven life. We don't need surveys. We don't need opinion polls. We don't need to be constantly reinventing ministry. John six thirty seven. the Lord Jesus said, all that the father gives me shall come to me. I will build my church. Jesus said, this is my spiritual body. I, I purchased it with my own blood. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Preach the word. This is the according to first Timothy 316, the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. I will build my church. Church being the ecclesia, it means the called out ones, the assembly. Hebrews 12, verse 23, the writer calls it the general assembly and church of the firstborn. And then in verse 18, he says something interesting, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. Oh, boy, this is a curious statement, isn't it? I can't tell you how many preachers I've heard say that somehow this is a reference to Satan Yeah, the church can stand even against Satan. There's nothing Satan can do to to attack the church. And then they get off on all this silly talk about binding Satan, which comes later on in this text. And I'll refute that in a moment. You ever heard that? You know, and I've read in the Bible, for example, in Ephesians 6, 6, 16, that we're to take up the shield of faith, which with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles or I believe the. King James calls it the fiery darts of the evil one. I, I've heard of flaming missiles and fiery darts, but I've never heard of him throwing gates at us. I, I, I've, I've never heard of anyone being attacked by a gate. Now, how do people come up with this? And obviously, they would say, well, that, that's not really what it means, I guess, I, but, but somehow, well, folks, let me tell you, it's really quite simple. I believe the confusion comes with the Greek word Hades, sometimes translated hell. That's where they get the evil notion here. The King James, for example, translates it, translates the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But a, a better translation of the word Hades would be the, the place of departed souls or the grave or death. You see, gates are not an offensive weapon, but gates are movable doorways, and in this context, They are doorways that keep people in a prison. Now, here's the point. Here's what Jesus is saying, quite simply. Death cannot contain the called out ones. The gates of Hades can't keep you locked in. Death and the grave has no power over the redeemed. It cannot overpower them. The Greek word here, overpower, means to have strength against or or to somehow gain mastery over It can't happen to the saints who are part of the body of Christ. The wages of sin is death, right? And Jesus comes along and he conquers sin on the cross. And he conquers death in what? In the resurrection. That's why the Apostle Paul tells us death is swallowed up in victory. And he goes on in 1 Corinthians 15 and he says, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, after the resurrection, the disciples would understand this amazing truth in all of its fullness. In fact, later on, it's interesting, Peter at Pentecost boldly preached, according to Acts 2.24, that God raised Christ up again, putting an end to the agony of death Since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. See, Jesus said in John 14, because I live, you what? You shall also live. That's the point. The the inspired Apostle Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.10, Our Savior Christ Jesus has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel friends, again, don't miss the theological flow here of our Lord's teachings. First of all, we must acknowledge the truth of who Jesus is and acknowledge that our confession of who he is has been revealed by a sovereign and gracious God. And then rejoice that God himself is going to build this church. He's going to protect this church. And then moreover, notice what Jesus tells his disciples in verse 19 as we wrap this up this morning. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. A reference to the power and the authority that God is going to give the apostles and by extension to all New Testament churches. We have the keys to the kingdom. We are the stewards of those who enter and those who must leave. And we're going to understand this in much more detail when we get to chapter 18, where we talk about church discipline, because that's the issue here. And it even uses the same language about binding and loosing. And he goes on and he says here, and whatever you shall bind on earth, which means bind means to for forbid or prohibit, shall be bound in heaven. By the way, it has nothing to do with binding Satan. This is where you get this silly stuff. You know, I wish we could bind Satan. You know, let's get together once and for all and bind that sucker, you know, and be done with him. You know, it's idiotic to think that we're going to bind Satan. And I always wonder, I mean, is that just for middle Tennessee or is it all of Tennessee? Tennessee. You know, how long is it? I mean, do we have an hour here? I mean, you know, it's just silly. There's nothing here about that. He's saying whatever you shall bind, in other words, forbid or prohibit on earth, shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you shall loose on earth, loose meaning to permit or to allow, shall be loosed in heaven. Now, the grammar is complicated here. I won't get off on it, but it does help us understand. And it could be more accurately rendered. And whatever you shall bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you shall loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. You see, the emphasis here is that the church has the divine authority to declare what is forbidden and what is allowed. Not on the basis of our own human standards, but upon the authoritative word of God, which the church proclaims and protects. Therefore, what we say on the basis of that truth has already been bound or it has already been loosed. It's already been forbidden in heaven, or it has already been allowed from heaven. And again, we'll understand more of this in chapter 18 when we study the issue of church discipline. And then finally, he just says to the disciples here in verse 20, I don't want you to tell anybody that I am the Christ. He warns them not to tell the fickle, misguided, hard hearted Jews that Jesus is not their conquering king. That would have prematurely outraged him. He's getting ready to go to Jerusalem now. Getting ready to go to the cross. Not to mention that would be casting pearls before swine. Friends, I leave you with this question. The ultimate question. Who do you say that the Son of Man is? And please hear me. The destiny of your eternal soul depends upon how you answer that question. Your purpose in life is to glorify God by doing His will. And it is His will that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And it's for this reason that I plead with you to acknowledge Him in the same way as Peter did and millions of saints have done throughout redemptive history and say with all of your heart, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank You for the clarity of Your Word, and I pray that You will help us to be able to apply it to our hearts and to our minds as we endeavor to have discernment in these days of such staggering apostasy. Lord, I pray that You will bring many to salvation as we preach Your Word and as we live it out. Lord, I pray that if there be one here in our service today or within the sound of my voice that does not know You, as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And all that that entails, Lord, I pray that you will draw them to yourself this day and bring them to a saving knowledge of our precious Savior. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.